You are listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, The Proper Seed, Sun, and Rain for Life's Most Important Crop, based on 1 Timothy 1, 4b and 5, recorded on Sunday, October 2nd, 2016. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. The wise uh, farmer knows that he does not ever grow any crops, uh, but that they grow on their own. The, the wise farmer realizes that he prepares the ground and he puts the right seed at the right time of year in a place where it'll grow and he can protect it from pests of various varieties and he can make sure it has adequate moisture, uh, but he cannot make it grow and he knows that, that he can't make water and sunshine and minerals make things grow. It just happens. His job is to cooperate with a process that's really miraculous. Uh, it, it, just, it just is a miracle. Walking, it's, it's an always everyday miracle that things actually grow in the ground. And he knows that. So it is with the work of the Spirit in your life. Uh, and, and if we're wise, we'll learn that lesson, that we do not grow anything within our own spirits. We do not fix our own hearts. We do not make ourselves holier. Galatians says it's the fruit of the Spirit and fruit just grows. But it's not that we don't have a role. We have to cooperate with this miraculous process. And today's message is, is on that, I guess. That's the subject. We're in First Timothy, as you know. I, I only want us to talk about the end of verse 4 and all of verse 5, and mostly verse 5, but the end of 4 and all of 5. Um, the, the Word of God is so rich that one sentence can contain treasure within a treasure. And in this case, um, Paul, is, Paul is saying, look, um, Timothy, stop these people from teaching false things. He's telling them what to do. But like so often with Paul, he gives the philosophical or we could even say theological justification for why it's important. Um, and, 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 and the treasure we're going to find is at the end of four and all of five. Not the, the treasure isn't in, t- in what he told the other people to stop teaching. It's what he told us we are to do. So, um, now the sentence starts in verse three, so I'm going to start in verse three. Ready? As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations. Stop them from doing those teachings. Rather, and from here on is our text for the day, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Instead of teaching the wrong stuff, they're doing that instead of teaching the stewardship from God. It's a strange little phrase that we'll have to look at. How do you go from Don't teach, rather steward. What's he getting at? And verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If if back in the old days, when we all had paper Bibles, if I had my paper Bible, I would underline love. I'd put a 1 by pure heart, a 2 by good conscience, and a 3 by sincere faith. But that's just a a suggestion. (laughs) Today, we want to concentrate... Um, on the trees. We want to look at the trees. Here's our outline to make it simple so you know where we're going. First, I want to look at the trees. Then I want to look at the forest. You you can lose the forest for the trees. Well, we're going to start by looking real close at these trees. Then we're going to move to the forest. The trees is we're going to examine the five phrases that make up this text. So on your map, you'll see it's blank it's, and, and because these phrases are short. There's just a few words, and you can just write them in, all right? That's, and then we're going to look at the forest. We're going to put all the phrases back together again after we look at them real close, and so we can see and understand the big picture. And then finally, we're going to ask the question that should be asked in every sermon, so what? What does this mean to me? How should I respond? So let's jump in. The five phrases that need our intention, attention here... Um, or the trees, if you will, that we're going to look at. Number one, the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
That's at the end of four. See that? That's where that phrase comes from. The stewardship from God that is by faith. This, this, this little phrase has three important words. Stewardship, God, and faith. I'm not going to explain God. Everything we do hopefully explains God. But I do think we want to take some time on stewardship and faith. So let's look. What is, what is meant by the stewardship? Uh, the stewardship, uh, literally the, the house management, the, the house law, the administration of the organization stewardship that 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 what the word is meaning here now stewardship is a good translation of this word because a, a stewardship is not the management of your property normally if you have your own stuff you manage it it's just called your own stuff that you take care of but stewardship is when someone manages someone else's property or someone else's organization um the um the you think of the farmer who perhaps um uh passes off organiz- uh, running the farm to his son, um, even though he's still alive. Or, but you know what? It's not just the managing of his farm. He cares about how it's managed. So stewardship doesn't just involve taking care of other people's stuff. It involves taking care of other people's stuff in a way that the owner wants you to take care of their stuff. So, for example, if you had a farmer who worked land and he had a few sons and, and for some reason he said, I'm going to have to be away for the season. And he said to his oldest son, you know what we do here. You know how I like it. Handle this. He expects that son to manage his farm like he would and care for it like he does and handle it like he does. Likewise, if you have a CEO who runs a factory perhaps and, and it's been running for a while and he's got a second in command and he decides we're expanding, I'm opening, opening another factory, it's going to take all my attention, I need you to run this one for me. That's a stewardship. He's saying it's mine, you run it, but run it the way I would run it. Timothy is stewarding the most important organization in the world, God's church. Paul is is saying what you have here, Timothy, is a stewardship from God. Who owns this church? God. Whose sheep are they? His. He bought it with his blood. It's precious to him. And he wants it run a certain way. Just like an earthly farmer would be upset if he came back and his son, the, the place just went to pot. It's a, you knew better. Why didn't you do it the way I said do it? The factory owner comes back and everything's gone to pot in a month. It's like, that's, that, you know what I wanted out of how you treat my things. No one enjoys it when their stuff is mistreated. Have you ever lent out something that you really uh, treasured and then you wish you hadn't because it came back much worse than you sent it out, if it came back at all? Well, that's how you'd feel if, if someone, you, you gave them something valuable. Well, God's church... He wants, when you see that word, the stewardship of God or the administration of God, what's being referred to is, this is my church. I want you to run it a certain way. And it's important to me how this goes. And Paul is using this to apply to that false teaching. He's saying they're doing it wrong. It's not according to the stewardship of God. Timothy, this is the most important organization on the world. The church is the most important organization on the planet. It's the biggest organization in the history of mankind. It has millions upon millions of members, and it has throughout the centuries, and none of them are dead. Every true member of the church is still alive today. The, the organization continues to grow. It is the only organization on the planet that will continue after the planet no longer exists. There is no union of human beings or group of people or any name or any organization or any nation that outlasts this nation, this world, except the church. It is the thing God is building, and he's trusting it to Paul who's trusting it to Timothy, who's trusting it to others. So the way you steward it matters. Now here's what we have to glean from this as we look real close at this particular phrase, this tree, if you will, is that stewardship is administered. The organization is managed by a message. If you teach wrong, you're managing wrong. If you teach right, you're managing right. He transforms his church and its people by his word. He he, he says, Paul, listen, you got people teaching the wrong things. Tell them to shut up. Instead, 
You need to steward, and then here, with the, the stewardship from God that is by faith. So let's ask that question. We're getting into to the minutiae here, right? We're looking at the trees. So let's get lost there a little bit. We'll pull back out and look at the big picture. What is being said, steward by faith? How do you steward something by faith? How do you manage or administrate an organization or an entity or a family or a church by faith? Is it like, well, I don't have any idea what I'm doing, but let's give it a go. (laughs) I don't think so. Although that's good enough for government work. (laughs) But that'd that'd be blind faith, perhaps. But that's, that's not what, it, what he means. A good way to capture this is, is really focusing on the word faith. Faith is a very simple idea in the Bible. But listen, it's very complicated for Christians. And, and I think the reasons it's complicated for Christians is because it's so important that so much teaching is done on it. So much has been written on it. There's so many people talking about what it is that people get completely confused about something that's very, very simple. One of the ways that perhaps will help you understand what faith is, is every time you see the word faith, substitute the word trust. Take out faith and change it to trust. Now, faith is a good word. We're not throwing it away. You can keep it in there. You could be like the Amplified Bible you read um, for, for we're saved by grace through faith. Say saved by grace through trust. Say them both. The reason why trust is probably a good way to go here is because faith in in, in in the Greek language, and by the way, I, uh, there's going to be a lot of talk of that in this particular sermon. I'm always afraid of that because I, two reasons. One, I don't, I want you to realize that if you're reading the English Standard Version or a lot of other good translations, you do not need to know the Greek to know what the Bible says. So I never want to, you shouldn't walk around in sermons and think, well, he knows the original language, like there's some sort of secret meaning. These are good translations. Um, uh, but the second part is I don't want to look like I'm all that smart. You know, I know about as I've taken like four semesters of Greek, right? If, if you've ever taken Spanish in high school and then a couple Spanish in college, you have as much Spanish as I have Greek. And I know Greek probably as well as you know the Spanish. But I, I need to know enough so that I can study the smart people who really know their Greek and understand what's there. But that, that leads us back, pull that back out to faith. The word faith in every time you find it in Greek... It's not always translated the same in English. You will find the word faith, and you'll find the word believe, and you'll find the word trust. It's all the same word. The reason why is, in English, faith is just a noun. It's just a noun. You could say faithful, I suppose, but really faith is just a noun. And the word in Greek is not just a noun. It's one that easily turns into other words, especially a verb. And, and, and faith doesn't turn into a verb. You can't say, oh, I was faithing really good yesterday. <laughs> I'm faithing you. Um, but you can say trusting, and that's, pro- that's why if you see in one place, you'll see the word um, believe, because believe can be made into a noun, and it's the same word as faith, and so we get really confused. What is this thing, faith? Some people think faith is some kind of a, uh, a substance you pour in. It's, it, it's trust. It's trust. Some people think, well, if I can just garner enough willpower and faith and believe real hard, really convince myself that something is true. My friends, faith is not convincing yourself something is true. It's not. It's trusting. And trust is a relational word. In other words, it requires you to relate to something or someone. Right? can't trust by yourself, unless you trust yourself, and I guess there's two of you, I don't know. <laughs> so when this says a stewardship by faith, it means that God wants to administer his church starting with a relationship. Knowing God is the foundation of how God manages his church. And the in- instruction that we give needs to lead people to a greater knowledge of God. When I say knowledge, I don't mean about God. You, you can often hear testimonies of Christians and they'll tell you when they came to be saved. And they will often say, I went to church my whole life. I knew all about Jesus. I agreed with everything I knew about Jesus. But then one day they say, I met him. And you know what they mean. Because, for example, probably everyone 
in the sound of my voice, knows about Ben Roethlisberger. You know, you know who he is. Can't spell his name, but who really cares about that? You can probably, maybe you can say his name, but you know him when you see him. You, you know the sound of his voice. You know how he plays football. You might even know his statistics. Um, you might know something about him because you read it in People magazine. But probably almost no one here knows him. And it's the same with God. We don't need learning about God. We need learning so you know God. All right, let's move to the next tree. The next second phrase is the aim of our charge is love. The aim of our charge is love. Let's look at that phrase closely. Literally, the end of our instruction, the, the telos, the end, the goal of our instruction, the word charge is to instruct. I charge you to get this done. It's being used like that. Correct instruction produces visible love in the people of God. That's me restating the idea. Correct instruction produces visible love. And I say visible love, not because love is always visible. It isn't. In fact, it's born in a place invisible. But if it always stays invisible, people will stop thinking it ain't there if it doesn't get visible. You always tell me you love me, but you scream at me, you yell at me, you hit me, you're unkind to me, you're jealous of me. You know, I could use some visible love. Start with buying me some ice cream or something. Do something. I mean, love, if someone loves you, eventually you can see it. So look what Paul's connecting. He's saying the goal, where we're going when we get to our destination, when we've taught Correctly, and it has been learned correctly. The goal isn't a degree, it's love. Right? Now, he's not saying, if I could be picky, he's not saying love is the main subject of all of our instruction. You're not going to come to every Bible study Paul gives and hear, it's another one on the subject of love. But what he is saying is love is the only goal of the instruction. For example, he may say, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He's teaching on drunkenness and excess. Don't do that. He's not saying the word love at all. But the goal is love. And somehow you have to connect those two or the teaching doesn't matter. The teaching itself will transform the listener into someone who loves. Capture this. The teaching itself does the work inside you. You don't do the work. You're like the farmer. The teaching does the work. Education changes nothing in this world. So this is a strange statement. Data does not change behavior. Behavior is born in something deeper in a human. This is why I remember being a kid in high school, well, a young adult in high school, and nothing we love more than when they bring in the cops would bring in these, these displays of drugs. They had little samples of drugs in a glass case, and they'd show them to us, and they'd show us dope and tell us how much it would screw us up. And we love that because first we like to hear them talk wrong. They'd always say, use, don't use marijuana. We laugh because we don't use marijuana. We smoke dope. <laughs> and we love to look at the dope because we wanted it. It was fun to look at. The education had no effect on changing behavior. This is the lie the world believes. They, they talk about how much, how many millions of your tax dollars have been spent on educating people about safe sex to prevent STDs, AIDS, and unwanted pregnancy. How many millions of your tax dollars? How effective has it been? Well, first, there's nothing, there's no such thing as safe sex except heterosexual marriage within the context, uh, in that context and without porn. That's the only safe sex because it's the only one God says is okay. All the other is unsafe because you don't want to get God mad. (laughs) Never safe. But have STDs been dropping? Are people not getting AIDS? Is is pregnancy, is unwanted pregnancies on? These things are 
Education does nothing to change behavior. So why could Paul say that our education will? Because unlike the word of man, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's actually alive. If, I, if, you, if you have a, a bad stomach, you can eat some yogurt. And the reason the yogurt will help you is because it's actually alive. There's living and active cultures in there helping you out. If you have a McDonald's milkshake, it will do nothing. But perhaps a better picture is exactly from the word of God. The word of God comes down from heaven like rain that, rain, that that waters the ground and brings forth vegetation. So the word of God does not come back void without accomplishing his purpose. And so we're seeing that love is a product. We must never look at love narrowly. It's very broad. One last really minute note. Just a distinction. The text is not saying God wants you to be more loving. He does want you to be more loving, but that's not what it's saying. Because if you walk out saying, well, I got to be more loving, you're going to fail because you just made a law out of it. I got to be more loving and you're going to forget. Or you'll remember and do something loving, good for you, and then you'll forget and do something mean, then you'll hate yourself, and then you'll forget anyway. What it's saying is better. Rather, proper teaching creates love growing in me like a crop so that being more loving is the natural outworking of what's already happening in my heart. Much better situation. I love just because there's more love there. Now, crops need several things to grow, so let's move on. I think those several things are listed here. Because the way he says it, he says, the goal of our instruction is love, and then he says, that comes from, or issues from, in the ESV. Three things. So three more phrases. Phrase number three, a pure heart. You need a pure heart. Okay, what's a pure heart then? Isn't this work? It's good work though. We're going to look close at that tree. What does it mean to have a pure heart? First, what's a heart? It's not the thumping thing in your chest in this case. It's not your emotions. The heart, when the Bible uses that term, is the real you. Not whatever, not the shell on the outside, but the kernel within. Right? Man looks on the outside, God looks at the heart. It's who you really are. Remember that person you met when you were three or four inside your head when you finally realized you're a somebody and you started talking to that person every day as you walk through your day? The real you inside your head? That's it. You are your heart. It's your, it's your will, your emotions, and your mind, your intellect. It's you. It's who you really are. And, 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 and naturally, you don't have a clean heart. Naturally, you have a... The Bible says that the heart of man is wicked and deceitful. Well, if the heart is you, what's wicked and deceitful? The real you inside you. So you're deceived. <laughs> well, who really sees the heart of man? There's only one person in the universe. Actually, three uh, persons, one God... Father, Son, Holy Spirit sees the real you. God sees you. And that's, that's, that's the heart he's talking about. Okay, so that's who it is. What's a clean heart? A clean heart means no stain before God. It means there's nothing between you and him at all. So it'll have a humble disposition. It'll have be very honest. Perhaps a good way to look at it is a clean heart is one that is not hiding anything from God. Not that you can but you can hide from God, right? <laughs> Adam and Eve in the garden, they sin. He comes walking in. Where are they? They're hiding. They're playing hide and go seek. And they've covered themselves up. Why? God's in the garden. What are you doing? I'm hiding. Why? Because I'm naked and I'm afraid. Who told you? Well, we all do that. Even as Christians, you can hide. You can be If you're in a, if you have a, 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 a sin you're not dealing with and you know it's there you're hiding from God you don't have a pure heart you're hiding I'm not saying you're not saved but I'm saying your heart is not pure right now that's for sure you're hiding and, and as soon as you say that all the men under a certain age think I'm talking about lust could be that could be chemical abuse could be infidelity could be anger envy stealing could be anything but it's your private sin and you, you're keeping it going 
And, 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 and if, if we could see inside our hearts, or we know what's going on in there because we're in shame. We're hiding behind a tree in our heart. God, don't look at me. That's not a pure heart. Now, a pure heart is one, and, I'm, and, and, and well, if you're not a Christian, you don't have one, okay? I'm talking just to the Christian. I got to remember, you may be here, you don't know Christ is your Savior, We're all sinners. Jesus Christ died on a cross to give you a pure heart as a gift to take away all your sins. And and, and you have to receive that gift. He was innocent. You're not. You should be punished on that cross. You were not. He was for you. If you receive that free gift, your sins will be forgiven. You have a relationship. You'll know God. And you have a pure heart. Now back, so do that if you haven't. But if you're a Christian... Your heart has been cleansed, if you will. You are forgiven. Your selfhood is without sin because of the blood of Christ. So why do I need teaching to give me a pure heart? Because if you're a Christian, you need to continually cleanse and because you daily fight temptation. And that can be hard to understand because someone could say, well, does that mean I'm not saved anymore because I've dirtied myself up? The answer is no. Well, how can I understand that? Well, the Lord gives us a very wonderful picture to teach us, and it was at the foot washing. Do you remember that? You remember the night before Jesus died, he got the 12 together, and um, it was after supper. He disrobes, which would freak me out right there if I'm in that room. I'm like, I'm getting uncomfortable. I don't know what's going on here. He puts a towel on. He hits the ground. He pulls out the basin to wash the feet. They're, they, they're very familiar with that practice. They walk around with, like we're first century guys. We walk around with open-toed shoes. Nobody's invented all the kind of cleanliness we need, so we got dirty feet, and we just get a bowl. We wash them, and We wash our feet. And now Jesus says, I'm going to handle this. And he gets down there and he's scrubbing their toes. And it's a parable. I mean, it's really happened, but he's trying to teach them something. Well, what's he trying to teach them? He gets up to Peter and Peter says, "Uh, Jesus, no. (laughs) I know who's more valuable here. I saw the miraculous catch of fish when we started three years ago. And then I knew, you're God, I'm a sinner. You said stick with you, but one thing I will not let you do is walk around washing my toes. I should be washing your toes. And Jesus said this to him. Well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no place in me. Well, he recalculates and goes, well, if that's the case, then wash my head too. And all my... (laughs) You can see the logic. I'd want to be first. You're going to pour foot water all over the head. You know, that's kind of nasty. Can I go first? Wash my head. But what did Jesus say to him? He said, no. If someone is already clean, they don't need to wash anything but their feet. Now remember, this is a parable. He's teaching something. What's he teaching? Well, he's teaching them. First, that he cleans. They don't clean themselves. But dirt is clearly sin. And he's saying, you're already clean, except one of you, who's Judas, because he had no faith. In other words, they already trust in him. He was going to die on a cross. Their souls are clean. They are safe. But he says this, but the one who is clean need only wash his feet. There's an ongoing need to keep your feet clean. Very simple image for them, because none of them had running water, um, It just wasn't a thing for them to have indoor plumbing. So you may bathe in a basin with water you dragged. You may go down to the river and scrub a dub up. But by the time you walk back, if there was one thing dirty, it was your toes. So that if you come in, you're going to get in bed with your wife. These are men. So, you know, you better wash your feet. She ain't going to like that. So you're clean. Just wash your feet. That's the whole picture. They get that. As a Christian... Your soul is clean because of the blood of Christ. But you're going to live with the Holy Spirit in you telling you to go one direction. And with your will, you're going to struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And at times, you're going to take three steps forward and you think you're doing great. And you take two steps back. What do you do? Well, you've got to continually cleanse your feet. And how do you cleanse your feet? Well, how do they cleanse theirs? How'd they cleanse theirs in the upper room? Jesus did it. You know, I was really graced on the men's retreat. The men's retreat was just an awesome experience for me this year. And, um, and on the hour of prayer, we, we were reading through 
a few psalms and praying through. And it, our prayer is all by yourself. So, so I was praying through Psalm 51, a very familiar psalm. David had sinned with Bathsheba and, and um, uh, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And we even had a sermon right here uh, this summer on that from one of our pastors. And I know that one very well. But I tell you, as you sit and pray alone in the quiet with a, with a, with, with a psalm, it comes alive. And God showed me something, I think, to help me that I'd never seen before. I think I was guilty as a regular occurrence of trying to wash my own feet. In other words, I'd, I'd step backwards and I'd say, oh no, God, I let you down again. Look, my feet are dirty. Let me clean them up. And I'd clean them in a couple of ways. One, I'd use time as an antiseptic. Time as a wash rag. You know what I mean, don't you? I'd sin and I'd think, well, I can't say I'm sorry yet. Look how dirty I am. I got to let a couple days go by. And then when he kind of forgets about this, I'll come back and say, remember what happened a couple days ago? And in the middle of that time, I'll try to rack up a few good deeds. Just want to remind you, I'm still the good kid you had. Or I just deal with my own condemnation and try to clean up your heart. So I'm reading Psalm 51. And David, who's a man after God's own heart, who definitely was clean by faith, but he stepped in it. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It has nothing to do with marital sex being sinful, because it's not. His whole point was, I've been a sinner since birth. I sin because I'm broke. Then he says, But behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Here's my problem. In my inward being, I'm a mess. But you want truth. And then he says this, And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You desire truth, you gave it to me. I didn't teach myself. And he says then, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David seemed to know long before the picture that if you need your feet clean, you go back to the cleaner of feet and say, would you do it again? Now this is a very humbling thing, brothers and sisters, to go to Jesus and say, I need you again. I can't think of anything more humbling, but how many of you are walking around with a dirty heart Not a pure heart. You're hiding from God as Christians. Because you won't humble yourself and say, Jesus, I need you again. Look how, look look at David's prayer request from Psalm 51 was, create in me a clean heart, O God. That just struck me. I can forget that grace is grace. I was forgiven by nothing but asking Jesus. That's how I got saved. Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he did. Well, why should I try to use a different method to wash my feet every day? What a beautiful prayer. Create in me a clean heart. You can pray that. So, our teaching needs to lead to someone having a pure heart. All right, the fourth tree, a good conscience. A good conscience. Uh, a good conscience. What is a good conscience? Um, <laughs> well, conscience, we all know what that is, right? Everyone has one. It's an internal barometer of right and wrong. It's a, it's a little gyroscope in your brain. It's a compass. It, it, it tells you what's right and wrong. Every human being has one. Now, here's the problem. Since every human being is born a sinner, it's broke. It's broke. It doesn't work right. It'll measure something. It just don't measure it right. I've found in the battle against the bulge that you must always weigh yourself at the same time and on the same scale in the same place because the scales ain't right. And you can get really encouraged and then discouraged if you don't get this right. And your scale of right and wrong ain't right. Because it's, it's, it's based on your sinfulness. And generally, you will find right and wrong to you depends pretty much on you being the center of the universe. This is why you have the eternal situation where if, if, if you make a mistake in traffic and it inconveniences your, your fellow citizen, you immediately assume, you, I hope, you guys need to be patient with me. Sorry, I mean, I'm sorry. Of course, you'll be patient. But if this, they do the same to you, you think they need to die. Because your internal gyroscope is, if it's good for me, it's good. If it's bad for me, you should be punished. 
you know, the child with a tender conscience the first time he steals, thinking God is looking at him and everything's going to happen, and nothing happens. He goes, well, actually, I benefited. I got the candy, and next time he steals, he, whatever even good was in the conscience is starting to get bad, and that's called hardening. You can harden your conscience. You can sear it. But you're not going to get to love unless you have teaching that leads you to a good conscience. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Is there a better example of that than abortion? There are a lot of people who really think the right to kill the fruit of a human womb needs to be preserved. And that to stop women from killing their babies is an oppressive thing to do. That is the most twisted, weird thing that you could ever think of. We're just killing ourselves. (laughs) Mothers naturally love their children. But when you meet people who feel that strongly, they literally believe that they're right. Because they're blinded. Because, and don't, you can judge that that is wrong, but don't judge them as being less than you because you do too on something, or you have. There's a way that seems right into the man, but at the end, it leads to death. If everyone just does what's right, we're going to be a mess. Everyone is just doing what's right. How's it look out there? Stalin just did what was right from his point of view. Hitler did. If the Jews are the problem, kill them all. Seems logical to him. Whoever you're fighting with is doing what they think is right from their point of view. If everyone just does what's right, we'll all kill each other. Well, what, how do we fix this conscience? Well, the Bible tells us. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word is a light unto my face, a lamp. Your word makes wise the simple. Conscience can be worked on. Let's look at the next tree after a good conscience, a sincere faith. Um, literally an unfaked faith. And, and I tried to make that Greek word into a English word. And every time I type unfaked, it tells me I'm spelling it wrong. <laughs> and then Friday night, I had someone I like very much explain to me why grammatically you can't have a word unfaked. Because un is a negative and faked, and that means it's not faked. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is, you can have unfaked. What's an unfaked faith, an unfaked trust? Can you have a fake faith? Is that possible? Absolutely. It's a cinch. That's, that's the easiest one to pull off. We've all done it. <laughs> and some people do it as a living. It's easy to have a fake faith. A fake trust in God. Just do the religious thing. Church it up a little bit. You know, James in his letter comes right out and says, you can have a faith in God that sends you to hell. Yes, he does. Read it yourself. You can have a faith in God that sends you to hell. He says, will that faith save you, he asks. The answer is no. So you have a fake faith. Well, what's a genuine faith? What's a sincere faith? What's an unfaked faith? Where do you get faith? Where do you get a sincere trust? Well, the answer is in Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Everything we need seems to be coming from instruction. Did you notice that? But I'm still looking at the trees. That was for us. Let's go back to this. How do you get trust? You get it from hearing. Okay, where do you get faith? Listen, faith can be so confusing because we have too much knowledge on it that's wrong. God gives it to you. So we can struggle with that. We're like, well, I don't like that. I need to produce it myself. That's my part of the bargain. No. And I know you can struggle with it, but look at it, try looking at it another way. How can you trust God unless you know God? And how can you know God unless he shows himself to you? The heart of man is desperately wicked, right? There's none righteous, no, not one, the Bible says. None who seeks after God, not a one. The whole definition of being a fallen man is you do not know who God is. You do not know God. You reject God. So how do we get from there to trusting God, which is what faith is. Well, he's got to reveal himself. And how does he reveal himself? 
through Jesus Christ and through his word. So when you hear the word of Christ, you're hearing who he is. But even then, your foolish heart is darkened. Your mind is blinded. God has to do something and wake it up. Push back the blinders and say, hey, hey, look here. This is me. See me? That's why coming to Christ feels like you're waking up from a dream. Oh, this is always right in front of me. How come I didn't see it? He had to wake you up. Push it. You heard the truth before. You didn't hear it. Why? Because he had to push that away. And then he had to show you himself. You can search the whole earth and never get saved. You can search all the learning of man throughout time and never get saved. Because God is not something to be discovered like a mineral in the ground. He needs to be revealed. It's revelation. He needs to show himself to you. So, faith comes from God. And God reveals himself. And he says, this is me. Now how will you respond? Well, you trust him when you meet him. And now I know you're good. You can't trust someone you don't know. You can, but it's not bright. Well, first you have to know they exist. But even then you have to know their nature. You're not wise to not trust people you don't know. Okay, that's the trees. Let's look at the forest. So sincere faith is one that trusts Jesus. And it's a growing trust. You start with one bit, you'll have more later because you'll get to know him better. And if you have a good friend, I'm still on the tree because I thought I want to make sure I shore this up. And if you have, if you're lucky, if your life you have one, two, or three really good friends who you're always comfortable with. Best of it could be your spouse. A little advice to people who aren't yet married. They often ask me, how do I know it's the right one? Look, I don't know about if you're, you know, don't look at tarot cards. <laughs> don't pray for a voice in the wind. Uh, here's my advice, the best I can give you. First, they need to love Jesus, whether or not the right one, because you'd be unequally yoked. But second, how your conversations, how do you talk? If it's comfortable and not competitive, if you're not always awkward, you're actually comfortable with this human, you're probably going to be all right. Because all marriage is is a really long talk. And I mean that. It's all it is. Really, that's all all your relationships are. So if you want the closest person, when everything else moves and changes, and it does in life, you're still going to be talking in 30 years. And, And so hopefully that's your best friend. But you could have another friend you can really rely on in that way. You're just comfortable with them. Well, they didn't start out that way day one, did they? No. <laughs> I don't know who he's thinking about, but amen. It's kind of rhetorical, but that's all right. This is an all skate. Well, when I first met God, I could only trust him so much. Not because he wasn't utterly trustworthy, but because I am the problem. So the more I get to know him, the more I trust him. And so it is. Okay, that's the last tree. Let's put it all back together and look at the forest, all right? So there's are five important phrases. I just followed the, the text, right? I'm going to give you a summary statement from me. I'm going to summarize it so we can see the forest. Here's the summary statement. And then we're going to have one we write down, but first let me give you one you don't write down. Ready? The goal of the instruction of the Bible is love. That's the forest. The goal of teaching in the Bible is love. Love is the goal. Love is not simply something we try hard to perform. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a verb. It's also a noun. It could be an adjective or even an adverb. It is the product that grows naturally by the Holy Spirit when we cooperate and have the right ingredients a clean heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And that's what our text says. The administration of God <laughs> is the aim of our instruction is love that issues from, comes out of, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Three questions you can ask yourself as you sit there, as you try to examine this is, who am I really? Who am I really? Good thing to ask of all the time. Sit alone and say, who am I really? If you have trouble sitting alone, definitely do it. Who's the real me? 
And then ask, do I know right from wrong and seek to do good? Do I really or do I only do what I think serves me? And ask yourself, am I trusting God to not only forgive me everything in that big global moment I met him, but every single day to forgive me? All right, let's, let's, let's look at the forest with some notes together. If we're keeping our hearts pure, if we will train our conscience to know what is right and seek to do it, and if we grow in trusting God, then we will love. No, we don't start with, that's where we end. And it's constant. Like you don't have to wait till the end of your life. Oh, I'll love at the end of my life. No, this is a kind of, you grow the fruit throughout your life. You love better as time goes on. I have more self-control now than I had 20 years ago. But I had more 20 years ago than I had before I knew Jesus. Because it's growing. It's not growing so I can be in control and get what I want. It's growing so that I can be more patient and love people. Love will be produced. It'll grow. The farmer, the wise farmer knows the stupid farmer is going to sit and worry all day. Don't worry. I do this every year. The sun, the water, the seed. We did the right thing. It's going to grow. And all three of those things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, are produced by the proper teaching of the word. And that is why Paul was so very serious. This is God's house. You have teachers teaching in your local church who have no idea. Shut them up. Tell them, time to close your pie holes. Our teaching isn't supposed to go to speculations and this and that and all that silliness. The goal of our teaching is love. All right. So what do we do now? This isn't going to take long. The application should be simple. First, see the Bible as the means by which God manages our church and our life. That's your application. The Bible is the means by which God manages you, administrates you, administrates the church. At Harvest, you know, and, and we're in modern, it's 2016, we live in the Western civilization, we have a lot of cultural influences, we try to do everything to be relevant and connect and all that important stuff, but really that's not the important stuff. That's just trying to stay just that's trying to keep the conversation alive. The important stuff is that the Bible is taught. If the Bible is not taught, all that we do is mismanagement of God's church. And so in your life, what's guiding you? Is it the voice on the radio, the newspaper? Well, people don't know what newspapers are. Is it the, is it the news update on your new iOS feed on your iPhone? Is it the... So all the latest, coolest podcasts and television shows and music. It needs to be the Bible. And not just at the first, but ongoing. A constant, not just learning, but doing. Second, we must measure ourselves correctly. The correct question, because we all measure ourselves, isn't how spiritual am I? How much do I read my Bible? All these self-centered things. It's am I progressing in love? As I learn from God's word. That's your measurement. That's it. Then you know you're measuring right. Two cautions. That's the whole sermon. But I want to give two cautions before we go. One, beware of pride in learning. Because I'm telling you, you need to learn the Bible. Watch out for pride. Thinking I'm smart. The measure and mark of your scholarship with the Bible is growth and kindness shown to others. That's what's being said here. The measure is not your seminary degrees. How well you know every, every doctrine. I am all for any degree of any kind, I will applaud you. If you think you need to get learned and you go and get a certificate, you learn to do a trade, you go and learn to do math, you know, learn, and you can learn Bible. I don't care. I applaud that learning because you worked and you earned something. But that said, I know there are a lot of PhDs in this world who are absolute morons. And there's a lot of PhDs who study the Bible who are absolute morons and who don't love any better than they did 20 years before. And there are a lot of people with no letters by their name that have post-doctorate degrees in heaven in how they love. Which do you think God prefers? So don't, don't get proud. It's good to learn, but if you have to show it off, you're missing the mark. The mark, the aim is love. 
Second, there's the opposite. Beware of pride in neglect of learning. You can be proud of that. Well, I ain't got to worry about that. I don't study nothing. Oh, great. Whenever I talk to a Christian who tells me, you know, I'm not sure why I believe this or why I do this, but just in my gut, I know it's right. I'm always like, watch out. Stand away from this guy. He's about to ruin his life. Because you can think, well, I learned the Bible. I read the Bible. People think they go on autopilot. I know what the Bible says, and you might, but you don't. Because we're a growing, moving thing. The Word of God, the same Word of God in Psalm 51 that I read last weekend was the same word of God I read as a new Christian, and I was blown away by the forgiveness of God, but I missed what I needed, and I guess it wasn't until I was 52 that God said, okay, now I'm ready to talk to you about this. Look, your love, your love, and that's what the measurement is. It's a, it's a product. It's going to come out of you. You can't force it. It's a result. I mean, you do do it. Obedience leads to it. But it's a product. Your love is like a canoe on a slow-moving stream. If you ever think you're sitting still because you can't tell it's moving and you don't paddle, you're moving the wrong way. The measure of your Bible learning will always be love. Let me end with a text from John. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother... Whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And we end here because the old man, John, the oldest of the apostles, they all got whacked before they got old, too old. This one time son of thunder who wanted God to rain fire on a village just because they wouldn't let him have a tent meeting there. When he's old, the only thing he thinks he's supposed to instruct is love one another. My brothers and sisters, the aim of our instruction is love. And it's an ongoing crop management and growth. And it issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.